Uh, we are finishing up a series that we began a few weeks ago, about a month ago, titled, I'm In. And if you haven't been able to watch uh, any or, or listen to any of the other messages uh, in this series, you're kind of sort of coming in, you know, like at, at the end of the movie. So real quick, I kind of want to give you a brief summary of what you've missed, and then we'll start this last message of the series. We've been looking at four different qualities or traits that God calls us to embrace as his church. Four different ways that God sees you and sees me as part of his church, the body of Christ. In the first week, we looked at how God sees you and sees me as invited, invited, how God sees us as invited into his family. Week number two, we looked at how this powerful truth that you are invaluable, invaluable to God's work through his church, which you are the church. We make up the church of Jesus Christ. Last week in part three, we looked at how God sees us as influential. Actually, he used a couple of metaphors to describe this, those being salt and light. But the underlying truth is that God sees you and sees me as an influencer. And this morning, as we conclude the series, I want to show you that by the power of God, you can be invested in the work of God, his church, to make a difference, not just here in our community, but even around the world. Now, as we, as we talk about this big idea of being invested in God's church, I realize that there might be some of you that, that don't really feel like you're invested and uh, you're just not at that place yet. And that's okay. That's okay. Being invested in God's kingdom and his church seldom happens overnight. That seldom happens overnight. But what I want you to recognize is this fact right here. While you may not be invested in God's church, the truth of the matter is you're invested in something. We're all invested in something, right? You're invested. You're currently spending much of your time, treasure, and talent somewhere or on something or someone. You believe in something. You're passionate about something. For example, those of you who have Chiefs season tickets are invested in the Kansas City Chiefs, right? Those of you who have K-State football season tickets, you all you emaws out there, right? You're invested in K-State football. Those of you who have KU basketball tickets, you're invested in the Jayhawks basketball program. Notice I didn't say football for KU. That's because they don't have a team anymore. The point being, the point being, if you buy season tickets to watch your favorite team play a sport, at that point, you become invested, invested in that team, right? It might be 102 degrees with uh, humidity uh, of like 90%. Or it could be 12 degrees with a wind chill of minus eight, but you're probably going to be out there face painted, yelling, screaming, acting like an idiot, jumping up and down, right? Because you're invested. Your heart follows your investment. If you're invited to say, let's say a cooking class or a golfing class or maybe a fitness class, budgeting class, anything like that, and if you don't pay anything for it, you might go, you might not go, right? But if that class required a $50 registration fee, you're probably going to mark that date on your calendar, aren't you? In fact, you're probably going to try and get as much out of that class as you can, right? Squeeze as much out of it as you can. Why? Because you're invested. That's why. See, if I give someone a ride in my 97 Ford Ranger pickup with my old raggedy worn seat covers and my ripped and torn Yosemite Sam rubber floor mats, you know, if they want to come in there, you know, I give them a ride, and they say, uh, hey, you know, they get in, they get eaten a sandwich. Hey, can I eat in your car? <laughs> Heck yeah. Can I eat in your pickup? You can throw up in my pickup. I don't care what you do, right? But let's say that I go out and buy a new, maybe not brand new, but say a 2014, 2015 tricked out Tacoma with leather seats, Corinthian leather, nice floor mats. 
and I pull up to pick you up and I see you walking up with a sandwich, I'm going to hit the door like, <laughs> you finish that sandwich before you get in here, right? Because I'm invested in that pickup. How many of you parents out there, and I, I sent this out to our uh, dream team as a devotional this, whack, this past week, but how many of you uh, parents established some furniture rules after you got some new furniture, right? Before then, you know, your kids could jump on the furniture, you know, use it like a trampoline. You know, your husband could come in from out mowing and weed eating, you know, with that skanky, smelly T-shirt and plop down on there. You wouldn't think anything about it. But the day Nebraska Furniture Mart brings that new furniture, ooh, that's a game changer, isn't it? Now, you know, you've got to hose those kids down and wrap them in plastic before they can sit on that new furniture, right? Because you're invested. Before that, you didn't think twice about that kind of thing. But once you get invested, it, it, it kind of changes the rules because we're all invested in something. The problem is, the problem is that many of us are invested in things that either don't last or don't matter or both. And the interesting thing is, because when you look at what Jesus taught about this thing of investing, he keeps coming back to a phrase that he used over and over again. He actually addressed this idea of being invested at different times on, and in different, on numerous occasions throughout his life and ministry. And he used different stories, but the basic idea was the same. And it ties into this big idea right here. We shouldn't invest in things that don't last, but rather pour our treasures into things that will impact eternity. So I want us to look at some of these different ways that Jesus addressed this idea uh, of not just being invested, but being invested in the right things, eternal things. Beginning, we're looking at Matthew 6, 19. He says, do not lay up, and many translations say store up. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So Jesus says, look, don't store up. Don't hoard what you, what you have. Don't invest everything you have in places and things that don't last and don't matter. Why? Well, there's actually two reasons. First of all, that's just not a wise thing to do if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, right? Because this place is not our permanent residence. The Bible's very clear about that. The writer of Hebrews is clear, says Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting, so he's talking about here on this planet, on this earth, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The Living Bible translates it this way, for this world is not our home. We're looking forward to our everlasting home in heaven. So that's one reason why it's not good to invest in the temporal things of this world. But the greater reason why we shouldn't invest our treasure and, and our resources in the things of this world is because God created us to pour, not store. God created us to pour, not store. And yes, that's tweetable if you want to tweet it. And you can take credit for it because I stole it so you can steal it from me. Our God has created us to pour out, to be a blessing to others instead of storing up just for ourselves. And when you read the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, you'll find that this is a reoccurring theme throughout his ministry. He worded it differently on other occasions, but the basic idea was still the same. For example, and many of you probably have heard this statement before, but another time Jesus express, expressed this grand truth of pouring and not storing when he said in Acts 20 verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, we're created, that's, that was his way of saying we're created to pour, not store. 
All right, now right about now, some of you are bracing yourself, thinking, okay, here it is. This is the pastor's going to talk about money, going to talk about giving. Well, listen, let, let, let me put your mind at ease here. The good news is it has been so long since I've shared a message on giving, I can't even remember the last time that I did. The bad news is since it's been so long, I've got about two and a half years of sermons saved up. Just kidding, it's only about two years worth. But we were created to pour, not store. And I believe, really, I honestly believe that, that most of us, most of you do love to give. Most of us do love to give. The truth of the matter is when you think about it, it's really a joy to make a difference in the life of someone else, to take something that God has trusted, entrusted to us, and we realize, you know, I actually have more than I need. I could use some of this to be a blessing to someone else. So I'm going to take this and, and maybe bless someone else. And see, there's, there's joy and there's actually even some excitement in being able, even some satisfaction in being able to do that. And you givers know that, right? When God has, has trusted you to, to, uh, to bless you enough to be able to, you know what? I don't need all this. I want to bless someone else. But come on, you already know that. You already know that. When you look back over your life, you don't get, think about this, you don't get emotional over the big purchases you made, do you? No? You get emotional over the times that you were able to give and bless someone else, right? It's not something that, that it, it, it's, it's not the, the purchasing stories that move us. It's the giving stories that move us. You know, I've been doing this a long time, and I've heard a lot of testimonies, a lot of testimonies on giving, but I've yet to meet the Christian who said, you know, one time we were at Bass Pro and we saw this pontoon boat and we were thinking about, you know, how much we could enjoy that as a family, but we didn't have the money. So we financed it. And even though the boat started falling apart after three years, it was such a great feeling when we signed that banknote for eight years. I mean, it just it blessed us so much. Never heard that story. I have never heard that story. All right. Or, you know, we were at the mall and, you know, my wife found this really cool bracelet. But since we didn't have the money to buy it, you know, we put it on the card. And I got to tell you, it just blessed my heart when I swiped that Visa card. It just, it just really, no, no. It, it doesn't work that way. We don't get emotional over spending stories. We get emotional over giving stories, right? Those of you who have learned the joy and blessing of giving have numerous emotional stories that you could share. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be a lot. It's not like you have to give a lot to get joy out of giving. It's not the amount that counts. It's just that willingness to recognize, you know, God's blessed me, so I think I want to bless someone. That's where the joy comes It's through that. Those of you who are tithers, those of you who are percentage givers, uh, those of you who have learned to trust God in your finances, think back to the first time when you made that. And it's a huge step where you said, you know what? On paper, it's, I don't see how it's going to work, but I am going to trust God and I'm going to honor him by giving back 10% of what he's blessed me with in, in, in an act of worship, right? Or you think about the first time that you gave in a special offering that was taken. Or, or maybe the time that you helped someone in your growth group that had fallen on hard times and was struggling to make it. And you look back over those times and you think, you know, yeah, I, I really did kind of feel the joy of the Lord when I was able to take something that God had given me and use it, some of that to bless someone else. And the reason you felt joy in that is because you, I'm, I'm contending, the reason you felt joy is because you were created by God to pour, not store. And the reason why some people get upset 
or uncomfortable when we talk about giving, I believe, is because we really want to give, but we feel like we really can't. Isn't, isn't that the tension? It's not, it's not because we don't want to. Most of us want to, but in our mind, we're looking at it intellectually and we're thinking, man, I'd like to give more, but I, I, just, don't, I just don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. But listen to me. Listen to your pastor here. The problem with that way of thinking is you'll never get to that place where you feel like, okay, now I feel like I can bless someone else, right? You'll never come to that place, especially when you talk about giving 10% of your income. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with people who said they understood, because I preached on tithing or taught on tithing. So they heard the message and they understood, yeah, I know it's in the Bible, but then they start kind of, okay, you know, what's this going to look like for us? And they put pen to paper and say, they say, Pastor, it just, it just wasn't there. I don't see how we can do it. And you know what I tell them? Welcome to the party. Because really, everyone, for the most part, they, on paper, they can't, they can't do it. See, that's where that step of faith comes in, right? And there's a reason why, now think about this, there's a reason why this is the only, the only area of spiritual life that God gives us license to test him. The only area. He understands how huge of an obstacle this can be for people. So not only does God understand that, I understand it as well. But God says, test me and see if I won't make good on my promise to open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessings, but even more practically to meet your needs. If you'll begin to trust me, I'll show you that, yes, you can get more out of 90% with my blessing than 100% without my blessing. And see, the reason I understand this so well is, is the same reason that you understand it so well, because we all grew up with what I call a scarcity mindset. Those with a scarcity mindset believe that there's only one pie, and if someone else gets a piece of the pie, then there's not as much to go around. And a scarcity mindset causes us to, to hold on to, to guard and protect what we have. We'd like to give more, but we can't because we don't have enough, so we live with this, what I call when then attitude. When I get more, then I'll give more. Again, the problem, the problem is we never have enough when we live with a scarcity mindset because we're consumed with fear. We're afraid, we're, we're afraid, so so we, we believe we need more, right? So we don't pour, we store, we hold on to what we have. Orange County, California is the most affluent county in the nation. According to Money Magazine, the median income in Orange County, California is 80, think about it, 80% above the rest of the country. Yet, a few years ago, when Orange County residents were surveyed about their financial status, the overwhelming response was, I need more. I need more. And now here are tens of thousands of the richest people in the world who instead of enjoying their wealth with a sense of gratitude are convinced that they need more. Now, I'm not picking on Southern Californians. My son-in-law's from there. But the truth is, most people have this mindset. In fact, Jesus actually told a story one time, a parable, about a guy that had this very mindset. It's found in Luke chapter 12, and it's a story about a farmer, a very wealthy farmer, which is interesting to me, okay? Because why? If he was a rich farmer... Who made the guy rich? God. God made the guy. Now, granted, he was probably a hardworking farmer. I mean, he's the one that went out and tilled the land, planted the, seeds, planted the seeds, put the stuff into the ground. But who owns the ground? 
God owns the ground. So the farmer put the stuff in the ground, God's ground, and lo and behold, stuff grew back up out of the ground. So the guy was a hard worker. He obeyed the principles of seed and harvest, but it was God who blessed the guy, and he had a lot of stuff. But like some of us, this guy had a scarcity mindset. This farmer had a scarcity mindset. And so one day as he's pondering all his stuff, he starts wondering what he's going to do with all this stuff. And as he's pondering what he's going to do with all this stuff, he gets a brainstorm. Let's read what his brainstorm was in verses 17 and 18 of Luke 12. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to, watch this, here's our word, store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will, again, here's our word, store all my grain and my goods. See, scarcity mindset leads us to store, not pour. So what was God's response? What was the, the one who blessed him in the first place and made him so rich so he had this storage problem? What was his response? Let's read it in verse 20. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be then? Literal translation, you fool, because you're being so short-sighted, because you're storing and not pouring before sunrise tomorrow, your life will be demanded of you. And see, Jesus said, this is how it will be for whoever, for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Folks, I'm telling you, we were created to pour not store. But there's another mindset that I really believe reflects the God of Scripture, and this is not a scarcity mindset, but a mindset of abundance. Not a storing mindset, but a pouring mindset. This mindset believes that we, we serve an abundantly generous God, a mindset that recognizes that our, our God owns everything to begin with, a mindset that recognizes our God is a good God, and that our God loves to bless his children. This is a mindset that recognizes that our God provides for our needs as well as our wants. Not only does God provide our needs, he gives us enough. He gives us enough. But not only does he give us enough, he gives us enough so that we can be a blessing to others. And there's a story in the Bible that illustrates these contrasting mindsets of storing versus pouring. It's found in the Gospel of John and interestingly, it's very similar to a story that we looked at back in week one of this series when we talked about the town prostitute who crashed the ministerial alliance meeting, right, when Jesus was invited by the Pharisees to go have dinner, right, this dinner party, and the, the, the town hooker showed up and crashed the party. And she goes over to Jesus, and she starts weeping and crying, and she takes out some very expensive perfume and pours it over the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet. The story that we're looking at this morning is very similar but it wasn't a sinful woman this time who did this. This time it was a close friend of Jesus. John, who was there and witnessed what happened firsthand, tells us kind of how this played out. In John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, six days before the Passover ceremonies began, Jesus arrived in Bethany where Lazarus was, the man he had brought back to life, the one who he had raised from the dead. A banquet was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served and Lazarus sat at the table with him. Verses 3 and 4. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But, watch this. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, 
verses 5 and 6. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was an embezzler. He was stealing. Right? Now, while this story is eerily similar to Luke's story, what's interesting about this account on this occasion is it wasn't a Pharisee who got upset about what the woman did. It was one of Jesus' own disciples, and his name was Judas. We saw that. And see, Judas didn't have an abundant mindset. Judas had a scarcity mindset. If you don't know the full story of Judas, he was the guy who betrayed Jesus. And uh, do you remember why he betrayed Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. Money. Judas thought he needed more. See that? So Judas was sitting there observing as, as, as Mary poured out some of her very expensive perfume upon Jesus. And while Judas is watching this play out, he starts getting angry. His scarcity mindset caused him to have a store mindset, not a poor mindset. He finally can't stand it any longer, and he rebukes Mary. He calls her out. What are you doing? We could have, used, we could have taken some of that and sold it and used it on the poor. So basically, Judas is telling Mary, we don't have enough to worship Jesus like that. We don't have enough to be generous. And immediately, right after Judas rebukes Mary, Jesus rebukes him. Verse 7, Jesus replied, let her alone. She did it in preparation for my burial. He said, "What this one, basically what he said is, what this woman has done is a beautiful thing. He worded it differently, but the essence of what he was saying to Judas was, leave her alone. What she's doing, a beautiful thing. She did it in preparation for my burial, which is a pretty significant statement. Because exactly 10 days from then, see, this dinner party with Jesus that's going on at this point in time would have been on, according to Bible scholars, Wednesday, March 29th, 30 AD. 10 days later, Saturday evening, April 8th, 30 AD, Jesus' body is taken to a tomb for burial by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. And when he took, and when this took place, when Joseph brought that to the tomb, sitting close by across from the tomb, well, let's listen as Matthew tells us what happened. In Matthew 27, verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the Mary of Bethany, who we just looked at, was sit, were there sitting opposite the tomb. Now, most Bible scholars believe that this was Mary from Bethany, Lazarus' sister. And they had spices and ointments to prepare Jesus' body for burial, which meant, watch this, which meant she would be carrying that same alabaster jar when she was there at the dinner party and poured it out. She would have been carrying that same alabaster jar to now anoint Jesus for burial. Dear ones, Mary was invested. God created you, God created me to pour, to worship, to be a blessing, not to store. Say that with me. God created me to pour. Oh, that was lame. All right, one more time. God created me to pour, not store. One final story that reveals these contrasting mindsets of store and pour is found in Luke chapter 9. It's when Jesus fed a crowd of thousands of people with just a little bit of food. It's called the feeding of the 5,000. And if you grew up the church, you, you probably have heard of this. Even if you didn't, you probably heard this story. Uh, 
In fact, most of your Bibles probably have that as the title of this section of passage, the feeding of the 5,000. But I want to give you a little insight into this. This was probably the biggest crowd that Jesus ever preached to because it wasn't just 5,000 people. Most Bible scholars believe that this crowd could have been anywhere between 12 and 15,000 people. Why? Well, at that time in history, whenever they would count a crowd, they would only count the men. They didn't count the women or children. So if there were 5,000 men, one would assume that probably many of them had their wives with them and, and children. And since Jews didn't believe in birth control, uh, they probably had, you know, a conservative number. Let's say a conservative number of three children per family, right? So you're pushing 15,000 people on the hillside that day, right? So that's why most scholars believe that this was probably the biggest crowd that Jesus ever preached to. And I never really thought about this before until my study this past week, but not only was this likely the largest crowd that Jesus ever preached to, it was probably the longest message he ever preached as well. How many of you know, don't, don't, don't think about raising your hand because I don't want to know. How many of you ever heard a preacher that preached too long? I'm asking for a friend, okay? Seriously, I've heard preachers like that, and you're thinking, you know, just because you're preaching on eternal life doesn't mean your sermon has to be everlasting. Come on, get it over with. Jesus had like 78 points in this sermon. He's, he's going on and on and on. And when you read between the lines, I, I think the disciples were getting a little bored, and they were really getting hungry, and the chiefs, you know, kicked off at noon, and they're kind of, you know, you know, you know can, come on, Jesus, can you, you know, give the altar call, wrap this thing up, you know? So, uh, but let's look at what it says here. In Luke 9, verse 12, now the day began to wear away. One translation says, as the day wore on. Little translation, is this guy ever going to shut up? And the 12, his guys, right, the disciples, his volunteer staff came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. I find it interesting that it says the 12 came to him. See that? They came as a group when they approached Jesus. Why? Well, are you going to be the one to go interrupt Jesus? Uh, <clears throat> hey, Jesus, uh, you know, can you kind of wrap it up? You know, I think I'm hearing some stomachs growling. I think the people might be, you know, getting a little hungry out, you know, so forth. But watch Jesus' response. We know they came as a group, but watch Jesus' response to the 12 when they said, hey, why don't you kind of start wrapping it up because people are getting hungry and it's getting late. Restaurants are closing. Some of them live far away. So listen to Jesus' response when the disciples interrupted him. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. Jesus, so they said, Jesus, I think, you know, you probably better go ahead and send these people on. I think they're getting hungry. Jesus says, I think you're right. They're probably getting hungry. So you guys feed them. And I'm sure that that wasn't the response that they expected. And so they start freaking out. Why? Because they had a scarcity mindset. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples said, well, we only got five loaves and two fish. All right? We don't have enough to give it to the people. All we have is five biscuits and a number two from Long John Silver's. There's not enough to go around here. I mean, don't get us wrong, Jesus. We, we'd love to feed these folks. But I'm thinking there's like, we're looking at 12 to 15,000 people here. It's just, there ain't enough, Jesus. We don't have enough. So watch Jesus' response to the disciples' scarcity mindset. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, 
gave thanks and began breaking the bread and fish into pieces and handed them to the disciples to go around and distribute to the crowd. Now visualize this. Five loaves, two fish. And, let, and let's say that, you know, he, he takes this portion, he starts, you know, breaking it up and he hands it out to the disciples, you know. So he hands them to Thomas. And so Thomas, and so because we knew that he kind of broke the, the crowd up into groups, it says that. So the disciples, you know, after Jesus gives thanks and starts breaking it and hand it off to him, the disciples go out and they start handing them to these different groups of people. So what do you think they're going to say? What do you, you say, wait, 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 don't, you can't take that much, Right? I mean, don't you think, hey, wait, wait, you can only take so much, you know, because, you know, we got a lot of people to feed here, right? You look over this massive crowd, and you look at your basket. You say, I don't think there's enough here, so, right? I mean, you're not going to say, here, take all you want. You're not going to say that. No, you're probably going to tell them, just take a small amount. Now, watch what happens. While the disciples are distributing the food, somehow, some way, we're not told exactly how, but not only did everyone get something to eat, they were actually leftovers. Leftovers, Luke 9, 14 to 17. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, how many? 12 baskets of broken pieces. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of leftover. They found 5,000 men, four or 5,000 women, maybe eight or 10,000 kids, but they still had 12 basketfuls left over. In other words, now watch this. It was like Jesus saying, here, here, here there's more than enough. And I'm going to give you 12 doggy bags so each one of you can take that doggy bag home and be reminded that I will meet your needs. All right? But I want you to notice the progression and how this miracle played out. After they determined what they had to work with, five loaves, two fish, notice the miracle progression. Jesus blessed it. The disciples gave it. God multiplied it. Jesus blessed it. The disciples gave it. God multiplied The principle is this. What you keep is all you have. But what you give, God multiplies. I'm telling you, dear ones, we're created to pour, not to store, to be a funnel of blessings. And as you're generous with others, God will often restore that provision and even multiply what was given. What you keep is all you have, but what you give, God multiplies. You were created to pour, not store, to be a funnel of blessings. Now, here's a question that I think bears answering. When did God multiply what they had? Think about this. When? At what point did God multiply the food? God did not give them more when they stored it. God gave them more when they poured it, right? God gave and then multiplied when they were generous and proved that they would be a funnel of blessing to take what God had trusted to them and use it to be a blessing to others. When God calls us to be generous, listen, when God calls us to be generous, please understand, generosity is not an act. Generosity is a posture of the heart. It's a posture of the heart. It's a mindset. Generous people look for needs. Generous people become creative with, with, with what they have. Generous people realize that, that, you know what, what I have is not all for me. That this isn't just for me to store up, but this may be for me to pour out. Generous people realize the absolute joy in giving and making a difference in the lives of others. It's a mindset. For me, this, this is a driving mindset of what our family and our church is called to do. And the reason that I'm so passionate about it is because this wasn't always my mindset. 
I didn't always think this way, but here's what I know. People who learn the blessing of being givers, people who are generous in their giving, this, this is a huge, huge thing. It, it, it really is. In fact, usually those people don't understand how huge it is. They just know that, that God has blessed them with, with more than they need, and, and I want to be a channel used by God to bless others. Again, I can't tell you how huge that is. You know, we, we have some givers in this church. And as much as anything, man, that, it, that just blesses the socks off of me because I, I just know how that can be such a game changer when people have that mindset, when they, when they transition from a storing mindset to a pouring mindset. It's a game changer. It, it really is. So let's talk a little bit as I wrap this thing up, the tithe. Tithe comes from a Hebrew word, masar, which means a tenth. The Old Testament teaches us, and Jesus affirms that the tithe is in the, something that's part of the New Testament covenant as well. He says, you should be obedient even in the tithe. Jesus said that. The tithe is when we return a portion, a tenth of what God trusts to us back to him through an act of worship, because that's what giving is. Tithing is an act of worship. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, Malachi was correcting some things in, in, that were in uh, the, the hearts and minds and lives of God's people, some things they were doing wrong, and he talked about their worship, and he corrected it. He talked about moral behavior, and, and he brought correction. He talked about the wrongful use of resources, and he brought a very strong correction, and he said this to them, "'Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse "'that there may be food in my house.'" Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Malachi 3, verse 10. But like you, like most of you, the first time I heard this tithing thing, I thought that's about the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Seriously. Ain't no way I'm going to give 10% of my money to the church. Even if I wanted to, God, even if I can't, you, you know my finances. There's no way that I could afford to do that. If I start doing that, I'd, I'd go under. I mean, if I started doing that, God, I'd really have to rearrange my life. Let me say that again. God, if I started doing that, I might have to rearrange my life. Right? Right? And it's almost as if God knew that all of us would think that because the only place in all of Scripture that he ever said, if you don't believe me, you can test me. And that's exactly what he said here. He said, test me, give it a shot. Give it a shot. Test me, says the Lord God, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And, and, and watch what he said afterwards. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And then this phrase, say it with me, pour out so much blessing that you won't have room for it. There won't be enough room to store it. When we're faithful to God, he proves himself faithful to us. And to this day, we see ourselves as those, as those who are called to pour, not store. Occasionally, I'll be talking with someone who comes to church now because if you haven't noticed, we've got a lot of new people coming, and that's really exciting. But every now and then I'm talking to someone, they you know, have this conversation, they talk about you know, how, how exciting it is, how much they're enjoying coming to church. And I find it interesting how people refer to family church because generous people say things like, Pastor, I can't tell you how much we enjoy coming here. We just love our church. Right? You can always tell if someone's invested or not because if they're not, they say, Pastor C, we just love your church when they're invested. They say, we love our church. You're invested somewhere. We're all invested somewhere. Where you invest, your heart follows. And I hope 
with everything inside me that you'll recognize that you're invited to the family of God, that you're invaluable to God's work, that you've got spiritual gifts inside of you to make a difference as the, as the church in this world, that you're an influencer, you're salt and light so that you can let your light shine into this world as you are invested, not storing up, but pouring out because we serve an abundant, faithful God and a generous God who gives his children more than enough so we, the people of God, can meet the needs of people in the name of the one who gave it all for us, and his name is Jesus. So, Father, today I pray that, that we will be a church full of people invested in your work, not storing up, but pouring out blessings to reveal the love and goodness of your son, Jesus, and making a difference in the world. Those of you with, here, with us here this morning, our, our eCampus e church watching online, I want you to be invested. God wants you to be invested. More importantly, you need to be invested. Let me tell you about the greatest gift. Our God is a giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. And Jesus is the sinless lamb of God who died in our place for the forgiveness of sins. And God raised him from the dead so that anyone, that includes you, that includes me, who calls on his name would be saved. So if you're here this morning or you're watching online, either way, there may be some who recognize that you don't have peace with God, that you don't know where you stand with God. And you know you've done, same, you know, you know you've done some things wrong. You know that you need his forgiveness. The fact that you're here this morning or watching online, that's not a coincidence. And Maybe you've been wrestling with this very thought, the reality that you're not in a right relationship with God. And you know it. You know it. It would be my honor to pray with you so that we can make that relationship right with God. If that's you, would you just pray this prayer with me? Say, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins, those things that I've done and said that have separated me from you and, and your plan for my life. Jesus, I pray that you would save me, that you'd change me, make me new. I know I'm invited, so help me to see myself as you see me, as invaluable, as influential, and even invested, invested to make a difference. You gave me your son, so now I give you my life in your name and for your glory. Thank you for new life in Jesus Christ. And now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.